0: Okay, I'm going to be talking, as I said, about loosening your grip. Going to start with a uh, story. Who knows who this person is? Warren Buffett. Yes, Warren Buffett is a guy who's made billions and billions of dollars in the business world, given away billions and billions of dollars, but he's a really smart guy that a lot of people listen to, thinking he kind of understands things about economics and whatnot. But he, several years ago, bought a company in the Bay Area, and he th- was having this celebrate or a party or whatever with the 100 other biggest shareholders in that company. And a friend of ours named Charlie was a pastor with us at our church and Charlie had always wanted to meet, meet Warren Buffett. So he went out and bought one share of stock in this company and he knew one of the 100 people who had gotten invited and he begged the guy, "Take me with you." And the guy brought him to the party and Charlie totally full of beans, and he goes up, and when he meets Warren Buffett, he goes, Warren, I own one share in your company, and Buffett leans over and says, between you and me, we can control this whole outfit, (laughs) and I love that story because it's funny, but I also love it because it gets the math right, because that is a tiny parable of the way God is with you and me. We face our life, and we feel like we've got this little teeny bit of what we want to do, little teeny bit of power. And God leans over, and he says, between you and me, we're actually enough. You and me as a team, we can do this thing. Jacob's story was about learning that for his own life, and we're going to study that as we read a story from Genesis 30, starting at verse 25. When Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me go, for you know very well the service I have given you. But Laban said, if you will allow me to say so, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, "You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also?" He said, "What shall I give you?" Jacob said, "You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I'll..." continue to feed your flock and keep it, but let me pass through your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. And my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look at my wages with you, every one that's not speckled or spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed all the male goats who were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he sat at a distance of three, journey, three days' journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob was pasturing the rest of his flock. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and pine and plane and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the rods. He set the rods that he peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the rods. And so the flocks produced young that were striped and speckled and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and completely black animals of the flock of Laban. And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the strong of the flock were, bleeding, were breeding, Jacob laid the rods in the trough before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the rods. For the feebler of the flock he did not lay them there, so, feebler, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man grew exceedingly rich and had large flocks and male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. So Jacob came to this land as a penniless Refugee, really, because he had tried, he had connived, he had schemed to try and get ahead in life, and everything he had tried had blown up in his family, had burned every bridge with his family. He couldn't even be with them. He'd come, he had nothing to his name. Laban, his uncle, took him in, and as soon as Laban took him in, God began to prosper Laban's flocks and his herds, and he had been kind of a miner. owner of sheep and, and of uh, goats, he began to prosper. But at this time, Joseph has his own family to think about. He's really, even though he's got a steady job, he's just a, he's just a hired man working on Laban's farm. He's got nothing other than his salary he can keep. And he said, Laban, you need to let me go so I can raise my own flocks and so I can begin providing for my own family long term. And Laban says, can I give what can I give you so that you won't do that? And they talk back and forth, and they come up with a deal where Jacob says, if you'll let me keep all the spotted and speckled sheep and the black sheep and the spotted and speckled goats and you keep all the rest, I'll stay because then I'm going to be able to start building my own family's wealth. But what you don't know necessarily unless you're a sheep or a goat herder is that the spotted and speckled, that's a tiny minority of the actual sheep that are born and the goats that are born, so Laban's kind of cool. This is an awesome deal. I'm going to keep getting richer, and Jacob isn't going to get much out of this anyway. And then Laban goes over to his sons, and he says, Go take all the spotted and speckled breeding sheep and goats three days' journey away from here because I don't want him starting with any sheep that are likely to have babies like their their parents. And he's conniving. He's doing all the stuff that Jacob would have done in an earlier era of his life, trying to tilt the table in his direction and, and connive and, and uh, get, get wealthy that way. Jacob starts with these sheep. He uh, peels these uh, little twigs so they kind of look like a barber pole. Thinking maybe that'll help my sheep have some speckled and spotted, but honestly, you know, some people say you've got two connivers going at each other. You know, Laban's stealing all the sheep and Jacob's got his barber's pole. But honestly, If you're a parent, how much control do you have over how your children are born? Can you control whether they're boys or girls? Can you control whether you have a single child or twins? Can you control whether they're going to be awesome students or going to have to work really hard in school? can't control any of that stuff. So I don't see it that way. I see it as Jacob, for the first time in his life, is actually leaving most of this in God's hands. All this stuff that in previous Stories in his life, you see him, he's the one who's doing all the devious stuff. Here he's kind of saying, God's been faithful. He's been blessing these flocks. He will bless them for me. And Jacob's kind of rolling his dice on the faithfulness of God, not on his own machinations. Finally, for the first time in his life. And the first point I want to make out of this story is that Jacob's story teaches us to let go and let God Jacob's story, as it's evolving, it teaches us about letting go and letting God. Jacob came into the world striving. He was snatching at his, brother, his twin brother's heel. He tried to lie, steal, cheat, steal to get everything he could out of life, and everything he tried blew up in his face for the first X number of years and decades in his life. He violated his family relationships and all blew up in his face. But now it comes time to make a deal with Laban, over how the flock will be divided. And if there was ever a time that was going to lure Jacob back into trying to connive and, and work out his own dishonest deal, this was it. But he doesn't. For Jacob, even with his barber pole, for Jacob, this is very different than he would have handled this 10, 15, 20 years earlier. He's letting go and he's letting God to a degree he's never known before. The controlling, the manipulating stuff... Not like it would have been, not like it would have been before. And God begins to bless Jacob in a way he's never seen. As he's leaving more on God's plate, as he's learning little by little, but a big step for him to trust God more, to to connive less, God is blessing him. As I was studying this stuff this week, it occurred to me, maybe a connection to just my odd little mind, but it said, Jacob's story, it reminded me a lot of the 12 steps, which I appreciate so much because it's given me back people that I love in my life. But I kind of played with that a little bit to mix the first few steps and put Jacob in there. Jacob, step one, had to admit that he was powerless and his life had become unmanageable. Complete family disaster. Everything had blown up in his face. Penniless refugee. Step two, Jacob had to believe that a God greater than himself could restore him to sanity. had that dream where he saw the ladder and saw the angels coming down and going up, and he's starting to realize there's actually a spiritual heart to life he'd never seen before, and he's trying to figure this stuff out. Step three, Jacob is increasingly deciding to turn his will and his life over to God. Is he perfect at it? No. Nobody in this room is either. But he's increasingly doing that with Laban trying to do all of his schemes. Jacob's actually pushing more of this onto God, less of them onto himself. Now, if I look out in this room, I know everybody in this room, you have things you want in life, things you're seeking, things you want to see happen. All of us have things, on the other hand, that we are afraid of, that we don't want, that we're trying to protect ourselves against. We all have pain Things that have happened in our life in the past or that are going on right now and they hurt us. It seems like in all of those contexts, we kind of come into the world trying to control everything and make those things either happen or not happen. If I can stay out ahead of every bad thing that could possibly happen to me, if I can think of it in advance and build some protection, if I can just get enough money, even if the economy goes south, it won't, we can do all of that stuff and we work and we work and we try and stay out ahead of it. And does that bring us peace? Actually, quite the opposite. That, that strategy turns us into a nervous wreck because we cannot stay out ahead of everything when we're trying to control it all. Or we may, maybe our story unfolds differently, and we actually get some of those things that we thought, if I can just get that, I'll be happy. If I can just marry that man or that woman, or get this much money, or get that job, or have this number of kids, then I'll finally be happy and I'll know peace. And we get to the top of the ladder we've been climbing and realize it's leaning up against the wrong building. Because this thing that I thought was going to make me happy, it actually comes with its own set of problems as well. It's not what I thought it was. Maybe it's a blessing, but it's not what I thought it was. Or maybe we get to a place in life where we realize, you know what? I just I give up. I can't control it. I can't make my life turn out good. I'm, I'm I'm done. And we try and numb ourselves out with achievement and toys and drugs and alcohol and sex. And we're just trying to push the pain away because we realize I can't control all of this. Jacob's story and God's story teaches us that the, that the key is to let go and let God. We cannot control our way to happiness, joy and peace. We need to let go and let God. A lot of you know a piece of my story about a bicycle accident I had three years ago where I ran into a car, broke my neck in a couple places, pretty significant brain trauma, but you, you don't know some of the rest of it. I'm going to share just a little piece of that with you. Six months after I had the bicycle wreck, my wife and I had to close the church that we had started seven years earlier, and it was the first time in my life I'd experienced the death of a dream, where you know, I knew what my life was going to look like. I was going to do this for the rest of my life, and then whoo, life is over here. And to me, that was far more traumatic than the bike accident, broken neck, brain, but having to close this thing down was the worst worst thing I could imagine. And, you know, we're just kind of holding on to God. We're grieving a lot, but we're holding on to God, and, and then we began to see some things. You know, our marriage got better, because all the attention that we had been too busy to give our marriage while we were doing ministry, we started to give it, and we got closer. And these three miracles, these children that God has given us, me who had been so distracted with my work, I'm actually paying attention to them now. I'm not pretending to pay attention. I'm actually there. And, you know, as I realized I've got about half, as I was recovering, I realized, you know what, I've got about half the concentration span that I'm used to having. I've got about half the amount of A-game. I said, "What a tragedy!" And then I said, "You know what? If I've only got half, out of all the things that I'm able to do, I've got to figure out those things that I was made to do, those things that God put me on this planet to do, because I can't afford to just shotgun it anymore. I got to laser laser beam it. And now, as I'm coming back into ministry, I'm building it around that stuff. And if you'd asked me before that accident, what what are those things you were made to do? I would have had no idea. You know, and it was we in control." Completely out of control. But trusting God and leaning on Him and letting go, being forced to let go, not because we were godly, just life made us do it. We had to lean into it. There's a Catholic, uh, a Franciscan man who studies and, and helps people with how do you grow closer to God, and he said this, his name's Richard Rohr, all truly great spirituality is about letting go. It kind of every significant advance in the Spirit has some element of letting go and of letting God. Some of you may have uh, heard this before, but I'm going to read it because I think it is a pretty good summation of, of growing up in life. It was called A Bike Ride with God. At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I died. He was out there, sort of like the president, I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Jesus was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring but predictable, the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts, up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds, and it was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, Paddle. I worried and I was anxious and asked, Where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine, and we were off again. He said, let's give those gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met, and I found that in giving I received, and still our burden was light. I didn't trust him at first to be in control of my life. I thought he would wreck it, but he knows bike secrets knows how to make it bend to make sharp corners, knows how to jump to clear high rocks, know how to fly to shorten the scary passages. I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places, and I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he smiles and says, Pedal. Second point I want to make is when we begin to let go and let God, we start to understand God's grace, God's grace. From Jacob's perspective, his journey to Haran, to live with Laban, was a, it was a, the result of all kinds of disaster in his life, and it was disaster he brought on himself. And he got there, and there's no way he could look up and say to God, you owe me blessing. He didn't. And yet, God is blessing him. He's showing up in dreams. He's prospering him. He gives him a family. He's doing all this stuff that he doesn't deserve. And as he's beginning to learn trust, he's beginning to, to learn this God operates on a different economy. He's given me stuff, good stuff that I don't deserve. What's up with this? This past summer, I got uh, to do a, uh, an amazing thing. I got to lead a team of people to Rwanda country that was devastated by genocide in 1994. And the biggest blessing of the whole trip is I got to take my 13-year-old daughter, Corey with me. And we were flying over there. We, got, we missed our connection in London, and we, instead of spending two hours in London, we spent 36 hours and lots of time on buses and going all over to try and get alternative travel plans made. And we're in the hotel room that they put us up for uh, overnight, and it's 3 a.m., and Corey wakes up, and, you know, her body clock's all out of whack, and she's, sometimes when she gets tired, she gets a little weepy and emotional, and she just says, Daddy, I don't know that I really believe God loves me. I know the Bible. I know it says that He does, but I don't feel like I'm worthy of that. And in my 3 a.m. haze, I'm <laughs> not the most articulate theologian, but I remembered one little thing, and I'm saying, Honey, that's what God's grace is all about. Remember this little thing I learned, I'm going to put it up here for you, but grace, if you, you can make a little acronym out of it, but it means God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not me paying for the good things God does for me. Jesus paid for it. And I'm saying, honey, that's the whole punchline of the whole faith. Of course you're not worthy. Nobody is. That's why the good news is good, because nobody deserves it, and yet God gives it. And you could see the light kind of going on in her eyes. And then we got to Rwanda where half the population has either had to forgive having family members killed or the other half has had to repent and ask forgiveness for having done terrible things. And the grace of God becomes real as it's lived out in this little country that experienced all this horrible stuff. The Apostle Paul found it. I mean, he grew up as he was if anybody was going to take control and make his life right with God it was him. I mean he had all of his eyes dotted and t's crossed. He said he was a Pharisee. He was perfect on the law and all of this, but then he went on to say in Philippians 3, everything I had on my resume, I count as rubbish now in in comparison to knowing Christ. Christ to be accepted by grace. I'm not going to point to my resume anymore. I just want what Jesus gives for free, this grace that nobody can ever take away from me. I remember one Sunday I was getting ready to to preach, and I was all anxious because my mentor was going to be in the congregation that day, and I'm like, oh, God, to preach in front of the guy who's taught me so much. And he he asked me before the service, he said, Ben, how are you doing? I go, well, if you want the honest answer, I'm really nervous because... You know, you're here, and I guess God is too, and all of that, and these people are coming, and I want to walk a dog today. Um, And so he said, Ben, do you remember when your kids were little and they would bring you those little finger paintings? And they'd say, hey, Daddy, this is a picture of our family. And you kind of, you know, you kind of go, okay, yeah, that's awesome. And he said, you stuck that on your refrigerator not because it was a beautiful work of art, because you love the kid who gave it to you. He said, on your best day as a preacher, it's finger painting. And God puts it up on the, and he's right, it's right. It's just a finger painting, and God doesn't put it up on his refrigerator because it was special. He puts it up on his refrigerator because you love it, because he loves you. He doesn't accept us because we go out and do all of this stuff. He accepts our stuff because he's in love with us. And he puts our finger painting up on his wall of his li- of our lives. And as we begin to let go, as we begin to understand how he operates, by grace, we start letting go and getting grace, and it starts to make sense to us. I don't know exactly what you're facing as I, as I say these words to you. I know that in this room there are marriage struggles. I know there are relationships that are in crisis, there are financial struggles. There are insecurities with jobs. There are health crises in our lives and people's lives that we love. There's concerns for our kids. There's any, norm, any number of additional things, of griefs and uncertainty. It is all real, and it is all universal. No matter what group of 200-plus people we were to put in this room, those same things would be true. Our lives would be messy. And you're the kind of people that Jesus came for messy people. Jacob was beginning to turn that corner in the passage we just read. We're trying to turn that corner as God's people. And like uh, my friend Charlie, we may only have one little share of stock. But God looks at you and says, but you and me together, that's a different deal. That's a team that can't be beaten. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are gracious and good to messy people like us we need you to be. And uh, this is a new dance that we're trying to learn, even if we've been doing it for decades. So would you teach us, Lord, what it means to let go and let you be in control. Let you put your strong shoulders up under the burdens that are too heavy for us. And Lord, teach us what it means to be loved by grace, not by our perfection, but by your great love and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.